Hello and welcome to this week's Politically Speaking podcast. I'm your host, as always, Chris McDaniel, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in our new studio... Jason Rosenbaum of the St. Louis Beacon. And... Joe Manis with the St. Louis Beacon. And our special guest this week is... Senator Jamila Nasheed of the 5th Senatorial District. Jason, Joe, and Chris, thanks for having me on Politically Speaking. <laughs> well, it's, it's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself for the listeners who aren't that familiar with you? I grew up in Doris Webby Housing Projects. Uh, my grandmother raised me. My mother uh, committed suicide at the tender age of 25 father came home from the Vietnam to, to have been shot by way of a drive-by shooting. I owned and operated a bookstore for approximately 10 years before I became a state rep. And I was a state rep for six years. And I can tell you this here. The first year as a state rep was very, very difficult for me. How come? Well, at that time in 2007 was when I got sworn in. The St. Louis Public School, we lost our accreditation, Okay. The children in the St. Louis public schools, they could not apply for the A-plus scholarship due to the fact that we were unaccredited. So I filed a piece of legislation, and that legislation passed out of the House. It went on to the Senate. Someone, for some apparent reason, attached Rankin Tech on to apply for the A-plus scholarship. And when that happened, it came back to the House. When it got back to the House, the local 420, which is a union, you know, teachers union, they said that it was a vouchers bill, okay? And they went around and they asked Democrats to kill the bill. I was really, really uh, upset, you know, by that. I mean, here I am, a freshman coming in, my first piece of legislation under the control of the Republican House, the Republican Senate, and not to mention the governor's mansion. That was big for me. Mm -hmm. So they killed the bill. And when they killed the bill, uh, state representative by the name of Villa, Tom Villa. Mm -hmm. He said, you need to learn the rules, young lady. And he said, you go pick up the book, Rules to Reconsider. Make the long story short. Brought it back up, Rules to Reconsider. The bill passed by way of support on the other side of the aisle. And at this point, I'm very upset with the Democratic Party. Was this in 2007 or 2008? This is eight now. Yes, 2008. But, but Blunt is still the governor. Blunt's still the governor. And so when the bill came back up and it passed, it passed by way of support coming from the Republican side. Mm -hmm. The next bill that came up, and I'm going to tell you, this, is probably, this probably was the biggest mistake as a freshman, probably as a legislator in my lifetime. Okay. And that was, the bill came up, it was uh, campaign finance. The, the bill to get rid of campaign finance limits. Yeah, to, I actually, to lift the limits. I was there, I remember this very well. And it came up, I was looking at the numbers, and they got to 22. I'm, t I'm sorry, 21. And I said, okay, well, the Democrats wasn't with me, so I was the 22nd vote. Mm -hmm. And I, I lifted campaign limits. And I can tell you that was the biggest mistake. You mean? You, for me. You were, the, I mean, because they needed. I was they a design, needed, deciding vote. Yeah, because they would have needed 80. Um, 82. 82. Yeah, I was the 82. And I believe two other Democrats voted with you. Was it Rodney Hubbard and Ted Hoskins who voted that? It was Rodney Hubbard and T.D. Elamine. T.D. Elamine. Okay. But, you know, I think that. That, again, was the biggest mistake for me 
as a legislator. Do you think it's making that emotional decision to vote against uh, the uh, Democrats? Because clearly it was a party line vote. And I was just so emotionally upset about it because Because they had just killed my bill. The A plus scholarship. So I'm going to do, hold for one second, I'm going to do all that I can do to right that wrong. I'm going to partner with legislators that, you know, of like minds that's going to bring up campaign finance reform next year. And I'm going to do everything in my power to, to try to right that wrong. Because right now, the people, they are losing confidence in the political process because of the campaign limits. I was, that was going to be right my here. question. So you answered my question without even Hot answering. Hot news right here. Now, do you th- <laughs> I got to ask you this because you guess you've functioned under both systems, one with limits and one without limits. Do you think that the current system is worse than the old system, which had limits but were easily – you know, circumventable? Or do you think that there needs to be a whole new system? There needs to be a whole new system because during that time, before we repealed the the campaign limits, you had a guy by the name of Rex Sinkfield Mm -hmm. that literally had approximately over 100-something packs. Yeah, yeah. Where, you know, I mean, the the transparency wasn't there. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can still go out and give thousands of dollars by way of 100 packs. So I think that if we're going to really talk about transforming uh, the the Missouri campaign finance laws, Mm -hmm. we have to look at it from out-of-the-box type thinking, Mm -hmm. okay? And we cannot allow individuals who, like myself, if I I came out of the Senate, I go straight into lobbying. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think that that's appropriate. I don't think that, you know, with the connections that many of the legislators, especially the majority leaders and the, and the minority leaders, they shouldn't be allowed to go straight into a lobbying a year or two years after they're done. Mm-hmm. Now, playing devil's advocate, and I'm not, you know, can one, though, craft a system, even if you reinstate limits, will it, would it be possible to even create a new system where one person, in other words, if you try to change the campaign finance system basically to address one or two people, because basically we're talking about less than five people who make these gigantic donations, less than five people out of, you know, all these over five million Missourians. Um, Is that possible? Or is it that at least if you have donation limits, at least it's better than not having them? Do you see what I mean? I mean, in other words, you know, if you have donation limits, there may not be a way to restrict PAC donations. But at least, you know, not, not that many people do that. Well, the argument for our system is that it's better than a system where you have people using dark money organizations like 501c4s, which which don't disclose who the donors are. Um, Actually, that was used in my campaign. What's that? The 501c4. Right. Mm -hmm. That was used in my campaign. They're doing some of that, though, anyway. Yeah, there was – Naranda got involved. Naranda, absolutely. They they put money into flyers that were favorable to Jeanette Mott-Oxford – that we I even wrote a, a something on that. There was that whole that there was that whole situation with Naranda. And Mont Oxford did. said she wasn't even aware of it. I mean, she saw the flyers, but even she said she contended that she wasn't even aware of who was behind it because she was like, "I've never been for Naranda either." But they really wanted to block you, so they were going to do it. So how do you? Well, craft they said this? they wanted to block Robin. 
Okay. And not yeah, because but, you know, it, it, okay. because I think you and Jeanette had similar views on Amron and being against the nuclear power plant, and right. Robin Wright Jones was, I believe. Four. Actually, it. I think she fi- didn't. She file the bill. Yeah, she was yeah, she very much in favor. So I guess they thought they just supported JMO over you. But I think you guys had pretty much the same view on that issue, if I'm not mistaken. But the point is, it kind of got involved in your race right. and and whatnot. So, but well, I, I'm going to pledge, whoever's listening out there, I am going to pledge to do all that I can do to right my wrong from 2008. Okay, so so how do you craft a bill that stops? the impact of all that money in Missouri? Like, what does it look like? Because there are still going to be ways to skirt around it, either well, through PACs or, or you know, And that's a, a good question. That's a good question. I think that that is something that, you know, individuals are going to have to come together and begin to think about how we can, how can we put together a piece of legislation where individuals won't then come and circumvent the process. Now, but, but, but even can you, I, my point is, is that, while limits, to many people's way of thinking, may be better than nothing, there's always going to be a way to circumvent it. It's kind of like trying to dam a river. The water's going to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of whether it seeps over the banks or whether you have a canal. <laughs> I mean, and, and in other words, if you... And there is a Supreme Court that has ruled on some things as far as you can only do so much to limit an individual's... But this would, though, at least limit somebody from giving $100,000, which is like what was happening just last week. You know, we had And maybe to- what we're going to have to do is begin to look at other states and see right. how other states are, you know, dealing with the campaign finance laws. Uh, right. Not to the extent where we just model, the, you know, the campaign laws of the other state to the T. But we look at some of the, the ideals and concepts from those other states and, and figure out how we can implement those here in, in the state of Missouri. Because we are the only state that can allow individual gifts, personal gifts, dinners, and things of that sort, to my knowledge. Yeah. Well, okay. Chris, well, Chris yeah. did that great, you, great story the, about that. We're the only state that allows unlimited personal gifts from lobbyists and unlimited campaign contributions. Right. That's right. That's what you're going to. Now, we didn't want this to become just a just in a massive discussion on campaign finance. We know that there's other issues you wanted to talk didn't about. We? Didn't we, though? Although I love <laughs> campaign finance. <laughs> yeah. But one thing that I know you wanted to talk about was the Turner decision because, you know, as a re- I'm a resident of St. Louis City and – the education situation in the city is paramount on all of our minds. So um, we need to explain, though, we real quickly need... what the Turner decision is. Yeah. So maybe you can explain what the well, decision the, is and the how Turner you think it'll impact. The Turner decision came about when you had two uh, students in Clayton. Mm-hmm. They they felt like that they should have the opportunity to be in burst. All right. For uh, well, they can go outside of the school district mm-hmm. if it's if it's an un- unaccredited school right, district. Right. Well, the Supreme Court on June the thirteenth ruled and said that if you are in an unaccredited school district, then you can go to an adjoining school district, and the monies will follow. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so mm-hmm. okay. go ahead. You're and perfect. so and so what 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 happened? There was a a, a decision. From the courts that basically stated, because their argument was, look, we're going to lose monies if this happens. I mean, meaning the unaccredited school districts, we will lose monies if those uh, students flee and go outside of the district. They also felt like it was not in accordance with the Hancock Amendment. Okay, well, guess what? 
the court said, oh, yes, it is. It doesn't violate the Hancock Amendment. And they have the right to be able to go out to an adjoining school district if the school district is failing, which I totally agree. I believe that no child should be left in a failing school district. We have too many children that are graduating out of those districts from the kindergarten to the 12th grade, not knowing how to read on a third grade level. Why should they have to stay there Mm -hmm. if you if you can find something Mm -hmm. better? So it was a a great victory for students. Now, some of the uh, for the students, some of them, the uh, teachers and many of the district like Normandy and Riverview, Mm -hmm. they are they're basically saying, look, we're going to go bankrupt. Well, guess what I'll say to them? Become provisionally accredited next year. You don't have to worry about it. Take it to the next level. Because that's what happened with St. Louis City. Yeah, take it to the next level. Uh, Even St. Louis City, we are provisionally accredited, but that's not even good enough. When are we going to get to the point where we are fully accredited, where students are really getting the academics that they need to thrive in the economy that's built on technology and science? We have too many children that are graduating from the from the kindergarten to the 12th, below proficiency in the areas of math and science. So we're doing a poor job with educating. But I, <laughs> but I want to ask you a pretty dir- – I want to ask you a relatively direct question. Do you think that the, fa- the fact that the school system in St. Louis City has been so troubled over the years is the reason why the population has gone down and why people don't – are kind of going to the county in St. Charles County, in, in your opinion? I think it has a lot to do with the uh, school system. You know, a lot of individuals who want to get married and have children, they don't have a school, a quality school that they can send their children to in, in the city of St. Louis, many of them feel. Well, especially if and, you're not if you're not Catholic or, you know, because there is that terrific Catholic school system in the city. It's private. Right. That's what and, I mean. And you have to have right. a little money to go to exactly. Catholic exactly. school. Exactly. Exactly. Our children, 80% of our children, are on, they are on free and relu- reduced lunch. What does that tell you? That many of them are below the poverty level. And so uh, the parents are nowhere to be found. Uh, the average 30-year-old, her child is 15, 16 years old. She's listening to Lil Wayne with him. Okay? I mean, they're, they're, we don't have the parental involvement that's needed in order to help cultivate a, a great educational system. Now, now you sponsored education legislation that actually ended up going to the the governor's desk. I know there were controversial parts of it. Um, When I say controversial parts of it, there were points in time when it was controversial. I don't think the final version is nearly as controversial. Kind of just tell me about the process of that bill going through the, the the legislative process and kind of what the final result was. It was similar to 2008 Mm -hmm. with the A plus scholarship bill. Uh I mean, it was like a deja vu. I sponsored the legislation, which was Senate Bill 125. And basically, that piece of legislation allowed for the city of St. Louis to be on the same level playing field as every other 521 districts throughout the state of Missouri. Okay? And that was basically if You have a teacher that if a superintendent, if the superintendent is not satisfied with the teacher and he wants to start the process of getting rid of her here in the city of St. Louis, guess what? It takes 90 days. And every other school district, it was only 30 days. So Dr. Adams said, look, 
we want to we want the same we want to be on the same playing field. Why should we wait to get rid of a, a bad teacher? Filed the bill. The bill passed out of the uh, Senate. Went over to the House. Someone attached an amendment to it <laughs> again, and that amendment basically dealt with. Uh, universal teacher evaluation. Right. Okay. And, and that's where it got controversial. And that's where it got controversial. So there was a, a lot of pushback from the Democratic Party as well as the Republican Party members. And those, the, the two amendments, they died. I wasn't going to allow for my bill to die because those amendments w- w- wasn't able to stand on, on its own. So I said, look, strip those amendments off my bill so that it can come back over to the Senate. And that's what they did. And now it's at the governor's desk. Now, uh, as a senator, I mean, you were in the House for a while, and now you're in the Senate. I'm going to throw a trick question here. What is the biggest difference for you as a senator compared to being a House member? Well, when I first got to the Senate, I I said, no, I don't believe anything I heard about the Senate. (laughs) I mean, I don't don't have any power. (laughs) Because, you know, going over there, they were like, you you're going to have so much power. You're one of, of 30, 34. Right. OK. And when I got there, I couldn't get anything done. <laughs> and, and and in the House, I yeah, mean, 163, 163. I mean, I was putting monies in the budget, <laughs> passing legislation. Because you were, you, you, I was a chairman. Because you were I mean, you were pretty pragmatic in the House, which gained you some praise, but also gained you some criticism because you worked with Republicans a lot. I, I guess, mean, you got along well with Speaker Tilly. Yeah. Before Speaker Tilly, uh, Ron Richards. Uh-huh. But and answering your question, question, I learned that the power comes within the last three weeks of session. Mm. That's right. That's why we're there. <laughs> that's 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 when you really know you have the power. Then, uh, and it's 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 different. You know, it's more laid back. You know, me, I'm kind of hyper, and you know. Really? I got there and it was right. It was really quiet there. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to go crazy in here. Yeah. Because it was really quiet. And you go over to the, the house side and it's crazy. It's wild. And I was like, I went over to the house. I said, wow, this is where I was. <laughs> but I remember talking with you near the end of the session, uh, kind of going to, to some of your frustrations. You you were a sponsor of a bill to do uh, foreclosure mediation statewide. And you you tried to stop that bill that kind of got rid of the local ordinances. And you mentioned you were kind of disappointed that you the Democrats couldn't stop that bill. Was that kind of well, part we of had, that? We had too many battles. That yeah. that was part of my frustration. Yeah. But we had so many battles. We had to fight back against the prevailing wage uh, bill that they were trying to push down our throat. Then we had to fight back on the uh, paycheck deception I call it deception. I mean, we had so many pieces of legislation that we had to push back on that we really had to really choose our battles carefully. Mm-hmm. And not knowing that the governor was going to veto many of those bills, I was like, look, why why are we not fighting? Mm-hmm. Why are we not filibustering? And they were like, look, Senator, that's not how it works over here. Calm down. We, we let it. This one pass. And the governor's going to veto it, and so we'd save our powder, our powder for later. Yeah, and I don't know what's going to happen with that particular bill. I think it could go either way, but both you which, and which, Senator— Which particular the, bill? This, this was a bill that basically eviscerates the city and the county's foreclosure mediation. Yeah, okay. yeah, We're yeah. Back yeah. On the program. it tosses them out. We're yeah. back on this one. I yeah. didn't know which one we were and, on. Um, 
I know that you were very much opposed to that bill. Not that you, I'm sure you're in favor of the local ordinances, but you weren't in oh, favor of that bill. Oh, absolutely. And um, both you and Senator Chappelle Nadal kind of indicated, the governor indicated that he was going to veto that bill. But I don't know what he's going to do on that. We'll have to see if that okay. actually happens. Now, a couple of quick things, because a lot of our topics, we're going to have to jettison, I think. Oh, <laughs> we've time. got time. But, but, but that's fine. That's good. That's what this is all about. I mean, We're trying to make this less boring. I know. We know so, we're trying to make she this told exciting. Us she wants to live it Oh, my it God. <laughs> I was just listening to last week. <laughs> Careful. Nothing Careful. against you, Senator Schmidt. <laughs> so far, the excitement level's at 10. But continue, okay. Joe. Okay, Medicaid expansion. I mean, okay, you know, nothing happened this last session. Um, Speaker Jones is setting up a panel. Um, A lot of the hospitals locally and elsewhere have been doing layoffs the last couple weeks. Yes. Yes. So there's a potential. There might be some more pressure depending on what happens when um, Obamacare goes into effect January 1st. What do you think is going to happen or not happen as far as the – Medicaid expansion. In effect, the state probably has lost the first year of federal paying, but that would still leave two years left unless the um, uh, feds change uh, the rules. You know, when the uh, U- U.S. Supreme Court's ruled uh, to allow for states to opt out, I think that was very devastating uh, to many states to have that option. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fourteen governors throughout the states decided that they were going to opt out. Our governor decided that he was going to fight, that he was going to push extremely hard for Medicaid expansion, which I don't think that that was a really good strategy to, for the governor, the Democratic governor, to be the one coming on, out on the forefront of that issue. Because many of the Republicans at that point, they started to push back mm-hmm. because they felt that, they were okay. going to, that, that, that the governor was like pandering. OK. OK. Uh, and. For some political gain, they don't know if he want to run for the vice president or if he's going to run against Blunt. But at that point, I think that kind of hurt the movement a little bit because they were pushing back. Not only did they push back because the, they felt the governor was politically pandering, they felt that Barack Obama wasn't doing the right thing because the federal funds they believe won't be there. Well, they didn't. They don't ever say that about highway funds. Oh, we're not going to take highway funds because we don't think the funds are going to be there. Uh, in 2009, when we had the uh, stimulus monies come in, we literally plugged the budget by way of stimulus dollars mm-hmm. for three years, for three straight years. OK, but now all of a sudden here you have the ACA where you can bring onto the roll. 260,000 people who are uninsured. I mean, you're talking at those individuals that are at the poverty rate of 138, which means that the average person, just a single per home, $15,000 a year is what they make. Mm -hmm. And the two family is 32,000. So these people are, are impoverished. They cannot afford health care, and, and you're going to push back because you don't believe the feds can pay for it? You're going to push back because you think that the, uh, the governor is playing political games? I mean, on the backs of, of, of all of those individuals who may have pre-existing conditions? I mean, let's get real. This is a human rights issue. 
and you're playing, playing petty politics. However, I truly believe, because I don't want to believe that the Republicans are just that cold-blooded to, uh, to leave 260,000 people out in the cold in terms of being uninsured. I want to believe that they're going to come with some strategy by way of the interim committee that I'm on and give those uninsured individuals the opportunity to have the same quality of life that they that that the Republicans are living. Now, let me ask a quick follow up. I know we're 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 jettisoning topics, but there's a segment of the Republican caucus. There's there's an idea that maybe the Republicans will change their mind on this issue I because believe of, that. because of the hospital industry and because of these hospital cuts. But as you know, there's a couple of Republicans in the Senate, mainly Rob Schaff of St. Joseph, who hates the hospital industry, who d- is not going to be influenced by them. And, and he's probably, a physician. And he'll probably filibuster until he falls down. <laughs> do you think that he's an intractable obstacle here? Or do you think that he can be kind of pushed aside or, or overcome here? I don't know. Uh, I can't answer that question because that guy's very difficult to, to understand. I mean— I don't know where, where he's coming sometime, coming from sometimes. So I don't know. I don't know if he would just, you know, kind of lay back and do the right thing or if he would stand up for 10 minutes, 10 hours, filibustering. I just don't know. Remains to be seen. Yeah. So if Missouri is going to expand Medicaid, when do you think it would happen and what do you think it would look like? Would it, would it you know— sort of look like other Republican-leaning states like Arizona? Arizona ha- ha- or like, Arkansas. Or Arkansas. I think it's going to happen when we get closer to the elections. I mean, Wh- which elections? 2014. 2014. Uh, although it means then, as I said, because the Fed, the, the Fed money mm-hmm. starts January 1st, 2014. 2014. Right. And if you wait, you're losing that first year. It's not like you get three years whenever you figure out you want to do yeah. it. Right. It's the, unless the Feds change the law – it starts 2014, yeah. and if you don't go on until 2015, you're only getting payments for two, two years. Two years, right. right. Yeah. And three. I think it's a total of, what, $3 billion right now? Yes. It's a total of $3 billion. So we may lose probably a million dollars. You mean a billion. A yeah, billion. A billion. One, yeah, $1 billion in 2014. What was the question again? What do you think it'll look like? Will it will it you know sort of emulate other Republican leaning states? I think what Bowens, you know, Jay Bowens, he's filed a piece of legislation. Mm-hmm. See, I think they don't want to do the hundred and thirty eight, but they gotta. They have no other choice. But one hundred thirty eight percent. This is the hundred thirty eight percent of poverty. But what, they, what, yeah. they, what they want to do is they want to being that we opt out of the exchange by way of the of the ballot initiative. Okay, you, you, do you guys remember that? Yeah. Yes. When we voted to not, although you know, we'll we we will have an exchange. It's just it'll be federal. Yeah. So we opt out to do it ourselves. Correct. Yes. Okay. Correct. So the feds will come in and they will implement it. Well, correct. But at that level, it's a hundred percent poverty level. Did you know that uh, the exchange individuals at a hundred percent poverty level, the feds will begin to take on the responsibility of ensuring those individuals. What Jay wants to do. Representative Bowens, he would like to ask for a waiver so that they they don't have to do the 138, which I don't think is going to happen. I think if you don't do 138, you're not doing Medicaid expansion. Yeah, 138 refers to the percentage of earnings that someone would have. There, yeah. 
they're supposed to have up. This is for our listeners. One hundred thirty-eight percent of the poverty level. And, and Joe, why don't you yeah. tell us what we are at right now? Right now, we're at nineteen percent for adults. Right. Yeah. For adults, we're at nineteen percent. We're at the minimum nationally uh, because we did all these cuts in two thousand five. So we're at nineteen percent. That's one of the reasons why, if they bring it up to one hundred thirty-eight percent, that's why all these people would be added because a number of those people, when we cut in two thousand five. We either eliminated or reduced benefits for 300,000 people. Right. I remember. And so by um, so basically by going up to 138%, a lot of those people would come back on. Right. But there was two other topics you wanted to touch on, the genetically modified foods. Um, yeah. I, I filed a piece of legislation on uh, GMO. I, I truly believe that I did some research and found that 75% of the foods that that that's in the supermarkets, it's genetically modified. No one knows that. I truly believe that people should have the right to know what they are consuming. So I filed the bill, and Monsanto lobbyists, they were all over it. I didn't even get a hearing, okay? And I truly, truly believe that the people, if you poll the people on Beacon or public radio, if you poll individuals, they will tell you that they would like to have labeling, okay? That if you're going to have genetically modified products, then you should label. That didn't happen in in the state of Missouri. The uh, California, California just um, this last election cycle, it was on their ballot, and it died because... Millions of dollars came in the last two weeks and killed it. But over 85% of the people wanted it, but they just didn't have the monies to fight it back. Hmm. So I think this is something that we need to begin to talk about. This is very important. I'm not saying that genetically modified foods, I'm not saying it's good or bad. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying the people should have the right to know what they are consuming. Okay. Now, I don't know how much we were pretty much at the end of our time. We're pretty much at the end of our time, yeah. So if you want to give a quick pitch on crime, otherwise, if there's the other mention that you wanted to give, <laughs> the little buzz, the news buzz at the end. Well, crime, we have a very serious problem with crime. The poverty level, I think it's a, a direct correlation to poverty mm-hmm. and hopelessness. Many of the young men and women that are reaping havoc in this city, they have a sense of hopelessness like they their lives doesn't really mean anything and as a result they're inflicting the type of pain that they're having on others Mm -hmm. we're going to have to come to a point on the state level where we can get the gun court Mm -hmm. passed we need to get that done that's going to be a top priority of mine to, to to get that done if we're not going to put them in jail like they need to be because what i keep hearing from chief dotson the judges are not doing their job. They are, they are allowing uh, three-time uh, offenders to come out back-to-back. And those that are on probation or parole, they come right back out and go on probation or parole two or three more times. That's, that's unacceptable. Now, if we're not going to lock them up, how about we just send them to the Army or something? Let them do four <laughs> years in the Army or something, you know? Okay, well, that's a good way to end things. (laughs) Well, Senator, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, We'll close it out here. Um, You can 
Follow me on Twitter at, at @csmcdaniel. You can follow Jason on Twitter at J Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at, at J Manis. That's J M A N N I E S. And you can follow the senator senator on Twitter at Jam Nasheed. Uh, you can read all of my stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can read all of Joe and Jason's stories at stlbeacon.org. We'll be back next week with another guest. Until then, so long. So long. <laughs>